0: Um, I just celebrated a birthday a couple weeks ago, and uh, yeah, that's pretty cool, and um, Molly and I, as we went out to dinner and kind of reflecting on it, we we did what we often do. Maybe you do this at, at certain kind of milestones, maybe at a birthday or an anniversary, or maybe just the new year, or after some key event, we looked back and we said, hey, what's been going on over the last year? What have we what have we been doing? And, and we all of a sudden started remembering lots of things that we hadn't really thought about in a while. I remember a couple years ago when I w- went on had the incredible gift from our uh, church and elders to be able to take a two-month sabbatical and I got to travel around with the family and we got back from that and and as we were kind of nearing home we had this conversation reminiscing what what did we do what did we learn what did we experience and we actually ended up making like probably like you do you you make kind of these photo slideshow videos anybody do that now we don't make our friends come over and watch it because we figured they wouldn't get it but we get it, and it's funny because as you go back through that, as you reminisce for whatever it is, you start hitting these things, you go, oh, yeah, oh, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah, that was really fun. Oh, yeah, that was really sweet. Well, here's the deal. We've been on a 38-week road trip into the <laughs> book of Ephesians, and we're about to pull into the garage, okay? <laughs> we're pulling into the garage, and today's going to be a day where as we pull into the garage, we reminisce. Now, this section that we just read a moment ago is really the bookend of this uh, book, appropriately so. And if you go back to Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 2, what you'll see is that the Apostle Paul begins with a greeting of grace and peace. He says, uh, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In this last section, in Ephesians 6, 21 through 24, there's another greeting. He greets the people. He says, listen, I uh, want you to know how I am, and I'm not going to write it all out right now, so I'm going to send this guy Tychicus. He's carrying this letter, and he's going to be able to inform you how I'm doing. And then he concludes in verses 23 and 24. Look at the grace and peace again. He says, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Grace and peace, grace and peace. And we've taken a 38-week road trip into grace and peace. The grace of God, the peace that we have with God. The grace that God has given us, the grace that we show one another. The peace with God that we've been given because of Christ, the peace that exists now between different kinds of people who are in Christ. That's what we've been looking at. And uh, so next week, we're going to actually, you haven't heard this in a while, we're going to begin a new series. We're going to begin a new series next week. And the series next week is called We Are Here. We Are Here. And what We Are Here is about is, is kind of looking at where we are in this moment in time, in this moment in our church's history, in this place that God has situated us as we prepare in January to celebrate 10 years of ministry as a congregation, we're going to kind of go, well, where are we? We're here. And where are we positioned as we look ahead? That's what we're going to begin to look at next week. But this week, we're going to reminisce about the road trip we took. We're going to look back. And my guess is as we look back and we look sort of what were the highlights of this book, what were the things that God taught us, you're going to hopefully have some things you go, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of oh, yeah moments, I hope. Now, the way I want to kind of organize this is there's a, there's a little phrase we've said at the end of every scripture reading over these last 38 weeks. And my guess is a number of you could recite it. Like early on in the series, the scripture readers would come up and they go, what's that thing again? And they'd write it down. They don't need to write it down anymore. They know it. And here's what we say at the end of every scripture reading through the book of Ephesians. We've said, may this word of the Lord prepare us to be faithful as God's people in tomorrow's world, see you know it. May this word of the Lord prepare us to be faithful as God's people in tomorrow's world. Because what we said at the very beginning was that the book of Ephesians was written to a group of people that God wanted to be faithful in their day and age, and that there were lots of issues and lots of uh, scenarios that connected with the Ephesian reality and our reality. And so, here's what we're going to do today: is we're going to look at five different ways that Ephesians has prepared us to be faithful as God's people. In tomorrow's world, Ephesians has prepared us in a number of ways, uh, and so that's what we're going to look at. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for opening the eyes of our hearts, giving us faith in Christ, giving us trust in Him. God, we pray now that you would open our eyes again, that we may behold wonderful things from your word, that we would be shaped and formed, not just in our heads, but in our hearts and in our lives, that we would also be faithful as your people, today and tomorrow. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. All right, Ephesians has prepared us to be a few different things. The first one is this, confident and secure in a world of anxious fragility. Ephesians has prepared us to be confident and secure in a world of anxious fragility. Let me ask you, who are you? Who are you? And who gets to decide who you are, right? This is this idea of identity we've already been talking about this morning. You have an identity. You have this sense of here's who I am. Here's who I present to the world. Here's who I think of myself as. Here's how people understand me. When people think of Luke, they think this. That's a kind of identity, And it used to be that identities were just given to you by your community or by your family or by the greater society. But now we're in a kind of world where the expectation is that you forge your own identity. You decide who you are. You don't don't have any morals or any parents or let alone any God who's telling you what to do. You're free. And you're free to go out and to create this identity for yourself, But what's fascinating is, as everybody experiences all this freedom to be who I am, we've never been more anxious and fragile about it. Have you noticed that the people who take a big, deep, inward into here's who I am, and then they come out and they demand that everybody get on board with who they are? And if they aren't, if everyone's not quite as excited about it as they are, they, it crushes them? Have you noticed this? We're anxious, we're fragile in this world. And we build these fragile identities. We say, oh, I'm going to be successful, but that's great as long as you're successful. What happens when you're not? Some, some of us go, you know what, I, I just want to be a good parent. You know, I grew up in this house and it was a wreck and I just don't want to be like that. I just want to be totally different from how my parents. And so I'm going to be a good parent. Well, what happens when a kid goes off the rails? You did everything right, but they just don't want to do life the way you wanted them to do it. What do you, what do, you do? That identity. Crumbles around you. So you say, you know what? I, I am known, and I want to be known, and I feel like the most important is my health. I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to eat right. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to get enough sleep. I'm going to drink lots of water. I'm not going to drink soda. I'm going to do all the healthy stuff. Kale. Yeah, bring it. Up. <laughs> well, what happens when you do everything right and, and the diagnosis still comes back and it isn't good? It's a fragile identity. If you seek to build your identity to be beautiful, I want to be known as someone who's beautiful, well, here's something I'm gonna tell you: age is real, and gravity wins. And if you do all the stuff to make it not win, you'll look worse, right? And so, and the reality is, if you build your identity to be beautiful, you'll always feel like you're ugly, because you're never quite there fragile. Say, I want to be the smart person. Well, then you'll always feel like, well, maybe people will find out I'm not as smart as I think. It's very, very fragile. And what Ephesians has done is given us an identity from God, where God has come and said, you are who I say you are. And you don't need to strive anymore. And you don't need to be so fragile anymore. You can be confident. You can be secure in a world of anxious striving, in a world of anxious fragility because of who God says you are. And so if you have your Bible, go back to Ephesians chapter one. This is where we get this. Ephesians one through the first part of Ephesians two. I just wanna blitz through who God says we are. God tells us in verse three, that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Chapter one, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what we said so many months ago was we said, imagine that you are looking for a new house. And you found this house online and it's like, oh my gosh, these pictures are incredible. This looks like it would meet every need and not just every need, but every desire I have. This is incredible. And you show up at the, at the house in person with your realtor and she begins to walk you through room by room by room. And each room you get to, you go, oh my gosh, this house is even better than I thought. That's what this part of Ephesians 1 is. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, but each little piece is this new discovery of who God says you are. Look at what it says in verse four. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You were chosen. Verse five says that you were predestined for adoption as sons. That before the foundation of the world, God set his love on you to adopt you into his family, to bring you and to be one of his children. You've been redeemed through Jesus' blood, it says in verse 7. It also says you've been forgiven of your trespasses and sins. In verse 11, it says you've obtained an inheritance. That means you're an heir. All of the riches of the glorious grace of God are yours. Not because of you. Not because you've had to earn and maintain some fragile standing with God, but because the security of the gospel has come into your life and given you this sealing spirit. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In Christ were chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, were heirs, were sealed Then we turn into chapter 2 and we see it gets even better. Verse 5, we're alive. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We've been saved, it says, by grace in verse 5. We've been raised with Christ, it says in verse 6. We've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. In verse 10 of chapter 2, we are God's workmanship. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. That word workmanship, again, means poetry. We're God's poetry. We're God's design. Listen, if you're chosen and adopted and predestined and redeemed and sealed and forgiven and raised and saved and all of these things, then you can be confident and secure. Not arrogant, you get this? Not arrogant. See, see what the gospel gives us, it gives us this amazing combination of humility and boldness. Because it's humble, because you go, I didn't earn this, I didn't deserve this, I didn't achieve this, I just received it. But it's bold, because the God of the universe says, you're mine. Listen, if you try to build your identity on anything else, when you do really well, you'll be bold, but you won't be humble. And when you fail, you'll be humble, but you won't be bold. In Christ, you can be humble and bold, confident and secure in a world of anxious fragility. The second thing that we saw in Ephesians is that God has prepared us to be truly united in a world of political correctness. Anybody notice there's a world of political correctness out there? I mean, I don't know if you've noticed this. And a lot of it comes because as as Society has progressed and evolved, but with this remnant of Christianity, we're in, moving toward more and more, some places are in it more and more, of what people have been calling a post-Christian society. You know, we had a time, maybe you'd call Christendom, where everybody sort of assumed some basic facts about God, everybody assumed that God was there and Jesus was real and all those sorts of things. We've kind of moved past that, and yet as we've moved past that, what we've seen is that society still wants the kingdom of God. They just don't want the king. They want all of the peace and all of the goodness and all of the justice and all of the equality, but there's no standard for those things, right? So when you even hear people talk about, we need justice, you go, what what are you even talking about? What does that mean? What is the standard? You want equality. Well, equality based on what? There's no standard for it because the world wants these things, but doesn't want the king who's connected to it. Now, what we said back when we were studying this in Ephesians 2 is there's an opposite danger for Christians. Because Christians can be so concerned about the soul and so concerned about spiritual stuff that if we're not careful, we could start to want the king, but not the kingdom. We could start to want all the kind of spiritual benefits of forgiveness without living in the here and now as if God's kingdom really makes a difference and changes the world. And that's another kind of problem. And so because of this lack of standard and because of this nobody really knows kind of what's, who, who's calling the shots here, it just devolves into this kind of political correctness. Everybody's afraid to say the wrong thing. Everybody's using terms that nobody's defining. It becomes another kind of works righteousness, really, doesn't it? Where it's a kind of like, hey, look at the identity I have as this enlightened, politically correct person. And and Ephesians comes in and says, no, 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 we don't care about political correctness. We care about true unity because we're the people of God. We're the children of God. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. And so any kind of, you know, rhetoric about PC, whatever, who cares? We want true unity. And that's what the Apostle Paul told us here is possible in the back half of chapter two through chapter three. He says, listen, there really are different ethnicities. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He says, listen, there really are different groups of people. That's not just a made up thing. Like there are Gentiles, there are Jews. And this letter to the Ephesians is written to a church that's made up of both. And Paul says there are real differences, but rather than celebrating and highlighting our differences, we're going to highlight the unity that we have. We're not just going to talk in these vague things, but we're going to actually come together as the people of God because there's true unity available, but it's only through the cross. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Ephesians is preparing us as the church to pursue real unity between different kinds of people. That's not possible anywhere else. People wanna use all sorts of slogans and phrases and, and kind of mob mentality, force you into some, belief system about equality. We don't care about that. But what we know as the people of God is we have a resource no one else has. We have the blood of Christ. And it's the blood of Christ where I'm not better than you and you're not better than me and no sort of status really matters because the only status that matters is that I'm a sinner saved by grace and so are you. And so we can truly unite and live in unity in a world of political correctness. (laughs) Here's a third thing that we saw through this series is that Ephesians prepared us to be committed to life change in a world of low standards. Ephesians has prepared us and is preparing us to be committed to life change, committed to real transformation, real obedience, real change in the midst of a world of low standards. Another thing I just wonder if you've noticed Have you noticed there is total confusion about what's right and wrong? I mean, like, there's just, and in a post-Christian, where do you turn? Who defines this? Who gets to call the the shots on this? I was listening, actually, this week to a, a gentleman who's in his 60s, and he said, you know, he said a lot of people today wouldn't realize this, but he said when I was in college, it was very common for professors to be romantically and sexually involved with their students. That was totally normal. That was not weird. And in fact, if you thought, hey, that's a problem. Like, you probably shouldn't do that. That's inappropriate. You were the prude. Well, now you fast forward 40 years and he goes, I actually think that that was a problem. But now, if a professor is romantically involved in sleeping with a student, It's like, whoa, 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 that's an abuse of power. That's wrong. He said, what's it going to be in the next 40 years? And he wasn't really arguing for what it should be. He was just pointing out, like, it's a total confusion. The standard constantly changes, the target constantly moves. But what we have in Ephesians is the reality that if we've been changed, if we've been forgiven, if we've been redeemed, if we've been infused with the Spirit of God, then we really can change. We really can make progress toward obedience, toward godliness, toward righteousness in a world of low standards. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. After these three chapters of Paul expounding the identity that we have in Christ, he says in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What we said back then was that a new identity demands new living. A new identity demands new living. Now get this it's not that new living creates a new identity. That's how a lot of people think Christianity works, right? If you walk in a manner worthy, then you can be one of the Lord's kids. That's not what this says. This says because of the identity you have, because of the way that you have been called by God's grace in verse 1, because of that, now go live in this new way. Now go walk in this manner worthy. I told you the story about how in high school I adopted cowboy clothes. Remember, some of you were here for that. Some of you weren't here for that, and you're like, wait, what? What did I miss? You should, that's why you should come every week. You never know what embarrassing thing I'm going to tell you about myself. And so in high school, I wore all these cowboy clothes. And so that new identity, hey, I'm a cowboy, big belt, hat, you know, the whole thing, meant I had to go line dancing at the Grizzly Rose. I had to do these sorts of things. Because a new identity demands new living. If we are in Christ, then we are committed to life change. We're not content to just say, well, I'm forgiven, I'll do whatever I want. But rather we're saying, I'm not just forgiven, I'm new. And if I'm new, then I don't have to do what the old me did. I can actually move into some new things. And that's what Paul told us in verses 22 and 24. He said, put off your old self. Which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Verse 24, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are formed by the Spirit to change, to be holy, to be righteous to be obedient. And that's what we spent the next weeks after that. We really slowed down at this point and we started looking at that. And so some of you might remember this chart of verses 425 to 5.5 5, where we were told to put off falsehood and instead put on speaking truth because we're members of one another. We were told to put off sinful anger and put on reconciliation because we don't want to give the devil an opportunity for a foothold. We were told to put off stealing and to put on hard work so that you can give generously. We were told to put off corrupting talk, to put on encouragement, because you don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We were told to put off bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and to put on kindness and tenderness and forgiveness and love. Why? Because Christ gave us those things. He forgave us. And we were told to put off sexual immorality and coveting and to put on thanksgiving, because we belong to Christ's kingdom. Listen. The world isn't going to call you to change. They're going to actually say if if you expect that you have to change, there's something wrong with you because you're not accepting enough of who you are. But if who you are is the old you, go ahead and deny that. Go ahead and say, no, I don't want to be that anymore. I've been made new in Christ. I've been given a new hope. I've been given a new life. And we begin to move in obedience, showing the world that actually desperately wants what's right and good. They just don't know how to put it together. They're too clouded by sin, just like we were before Christ and just like we too often still are. But we look to Jesus and we see we can change, not because of us, but because of him. There's a fourth thing that we saw. There's a fourth thing that... Ephesians is preparing us to be Ephesians is preparing us to be empowered for sacrificial love in a world of selfishness. Ephesians is preparing us to be empowered for sacrificial love in a world of selfishness. Now again, if you if you go back a number of decades and as I make these references to going back, I'm not arguing we should go back. I'm just pointing out how it's happened. Okay, but if you go back, it used to be 100 years ago that kind of the main thing that we all sort of aspired to, at least in an American kind of context, is we said, "I want to be a good person." Now, what we all we all kind of well, who def-, just like we said, who gets to say who's good? Who gets to say what's right and wrong? I don't really care about that. I just want to be free. I want to be free. But when freedom gets so elevated, here's what happens. Relationships become transactional. Relationships become transactional because if someone's asking too much, if someone wants too much, if someone is a little bit too needy, then they're getting in the way of my freedom. And so this is fascinating: is that our desire for freedom goes up, and our relationships become transactional? We're now more lonely than ever. Well, why? It's it's connected. Do you see that? And so the world is saying, hey, relationships are transactional. Do what you need to do. I, I, I wonder, it makes you wonder, is this why in America the birth rate's declining? Now, not at Gateway. Hallelujah. <laughs> at Gateway, the birth rate is going strong, right? But, but as you look at, you know, one of the interesting just sociological facts of America and really all Western countries is that our birth rates are declining. Is it possible that that's because children are really costly? And if the thing I most want is my freedom, why would I weigh myself down with one of those? I can't get rid of that. I can't get rid of them. Ah, Maybe maybe, maybe just won't do that. It's something to think about. But in the midst of that, and that's actually not that different, really. I mean, the birth rate, I think, was strong in Ephesus, but... But in the same, but, but similar to our culture in Ephesus, there was still this idea that if you were in power, especially, that you didn't have to sacrifice anything and that your relationship was just about what you could get. And so Paul, in that very same kind of reality, says in verse 518 that we're to be filled with the Spirit. And then he unpacked for the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 what that would mean. What that would mean is that if we're filled by the Spirit, we move from self-gratifying love... To self-giving love, moving from relationships that are transactional or are about what I can get, to rather investing in relationships, especially in the family and in the workplace, about how can I give? How can I be a blessing? I've been blessed by God to be a blessing. So wives are to respectfully submit to their husbands, it said in five twenty-two. Husbands are to love. "...sacrificially their wives as Christ loved the church," as it said in 5.25. "...children appropriately are to obey their parents and the Lord," it said in chapter 6, verses 1 and th- through 3. "...fathers, parents, are supposed to raise their children, but with kindness and discipline and instruction, not provoking them to anger, not doing the things that, that they know will get a bad reaction, but with kindness." "...servants... Employees, those under authority, are to respectfully work hard, not just to impress people or please people, but to serve the Lord. Masters, those in authority, those in leadership, are to also be respectful and to be humble as they lead. Because as it said in chapter 6, verse 9, He who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. Listen your friends and your family who don't really think this Jesus thing's true. What if you stopped trying to win them over with arguments and instead tried to win them over with sacrificial love? Where they might go, you know what, I don't know if I believe what you believe, I don't know if I agree with the things you say, but I can't deny that nobody loves like you do. That's how Ephesians is preparing us to be. It does no good if we just go, yeah, we're the people that can really love, but we don't love. (laughs) That's ridiculous, right? That's the hypocrisy. But we are empowered with a new kind of strength, with a new spirit of God who is giving us the ability to do love to give ourselves away, the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand payback or that the person is deserving. Ephesians prepared us for that. And here's the last thing Ephesians prepared us for, is to be strengthened by Jesus in a world bent on making God seem small. We saw in Ephesians chapter 6 That there are powers and principalities that are opposed to Jesus, that are opposed to his people, that are trying to destroy us, that are lying to us, that are accusing us, that are seeking to undermine us. And why are they doing it? Why are the, uh, verse 12 of chapter 6, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, why are they scheming? Why are they manipulating? Why are they attacking? Why? Why? not just to scare us, not just to freak us out, but to undermine our trust in God, to make God seem small. Because if God's small, then you don't really need to look to him for much, right? And so let's make God seem small. And so even from the very beginning, as the serpent lied to Eve and said, did God, did God really say, did God really say that? You know, actually, God's not as big as you think, and he's kind of insecure and intimidated that if, if you know what he knows, man, this the jig's up. That's the lie of the enemy. Why? To make God seem small. To make you not trust him, to make you not rely on him, so that when circumstances of life are difficult and painful and hard, you don't look to him, you look to yourself, or you walk away from God altogether. But we are invited, strengthened by Jesus, to stand. Look at what it said in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 14, stand therefore. We stand as we put on the armor of God. And we talked about over these last weeks that putting on the armor of God is putting on Christ. That we put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the uh, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit that all of these are images of putting on Christ being covered in Christ being secure in Christ so that our faith is strong so that our confidence in God is high but listen this is not us digging deep to find big faith this is rather us coming to the Lord helpless as it said in verse 10 Be strong in the Lord. Be being strengthened in the Lord. Don't dig deep. Don't look to yourself. Look to him. Be being strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How do you know if you're putting yourself in a position to be strong in the Lord, to where he's going to fill you, where he's going to empower you, where he's going to give you what you couldn't have otherwise? How do you know? Well, Verse 18, you are praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. You're keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul Miller says this, prayer is bringing our helplessness to Jesus. Here's the thing. The world that's bent on making God seem small also wants to make you seem big. And if you feel like I got to be big, you'll never admit that you're weak. You'll never admit that you're dependent. You'll never admit that you're needy. And so you will fake it and you will try to bow up and you will try to be really strong for God and and be really strong for the people around you. That's not what God calls you to be. He calls you to be weak. He calls you to come to the kingdom of God like a child, messy, weak, helpless. And to keep coming. Why? So that He would be big so that he would make you strong, so that he would get the glory in a world that wants to make him seem small. Listen, Ephesians has told us that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Everything. He's bringing together heaven and earth. He's bringing together sinners and God. He's bringing together Jews and Gentiles. He's bringing together men and women. He's bringing together slave and free. And we get to live as his pink spoon people. It's like you go to the ice cream shop and they get that pink spoon and you you get a real sample of that delicious ice cream. We are the pink spoon people of God, giving the world a taste of the kingdom of God. Giving people a taste of what life is like when Jesus reigns over your life. Giving people a taste of the kind of love and the kind of confidence and the kind of humility and the kind of unity and the kind of power that's available in Christ. We get to be the pink spoon people of God. And that's actually what we're going to begin to talk about next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for the book of Ephesians. Thank you for Paul and the way you filled him with your spirit to breathe these words out and the people who wrote it and the people who preserved it and the people who passed it on. God, thank you for that. Thank you that all these years later we can read it and understand it in our own language. What a gift. Thank you that you prepare us to be faithful as your people as an outpost, as a pink spoon taste of the kingdom of God in this place, in this time, in this season. Help us to be faithful as your people in tomorrow's world. Amen.